Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host each week. You may recognize me also as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. Always put your name in the podcast for obvious reasons. But after four years, now I've become the world's largest weekly leadership podcast, hitting between six and seven million people each week. What we found is after four years of interviewing business titans and celebrities and best-selling authors and four-star generals and others that those conversations are invaluable. And what most of you downloaded and liked and forwarded and shared the most were not always the famous celebrity, but it was the guest that had a somewhat relatable experience to your own career. Perhaps it was the person on their way to the C-suite or had made it there. And so we spun off this new podcast called C-suite Conversations with Scott Miller to do just that, to highlight each week someone in the C-suite so you can learn what it's like to build your career to model after theirs, or even what are some of the demands and unique challenges that people in the C-suite face. And today, our guest is the co-founder and CEO of Motherly. Her name is Jill Koziel, and she joins us today. Jill, welcome to C-suite Conversations. Thank you so much, Scott. It's great to be with you. So first, let's level set. Motherly is an online resource for working mothers, mothers of all stages of their life, both personally and professionally. Give everybody watching and listening to a little bit of a uh, level set on Motherly? So Motherly is just as you said, it is a place that is empowering mothers to thrive. Uh, we believe at Motherly that when a mother thrives, families and communities thrive, and that the millennial and this digital native generation that have become parents over the last you know, five, 10 years um, really didn't see a modern representation of themselves and a brand and especially in media. And so we are here as a media platform with content, community, and commerce. We have digital education classes. We have podcasts ourselves, the Motherly Podcast, um, and uh, books, and a ton of articles and videos as well. We've got about 30 million women a month that are engaging with Motherly. It's fantastic. Congrats on your success. My wife, Stephanie, who's a full-time stay-at-home mom and manager of our lives, receives your email. She showed me this morning's. I think you were featuring a conversation with Christy Teigen amongst other yes. assets this morning. So a broad variety of resources. L let's start with, today you have a captive audience of a vast number of people in the C-suite that are watching and listening. What would you like them to know? People like me who spent the better part of my decade as an officer in a public company, Franklin Covey, what would you like for C-suite leaders to know about working mothers, the pressures that they face, and quite frankly, how they can better support mothers who, my guess is, dramatically have burdened the shoulder, had to, had to, had to bear the weight of post-pandemic, pre- and, and during-pandemic duties in the house. What would you like for all of us to be reminded of? Well, today's mom looks nothing like the mom of the past. And so there's really three drivers that we focus on. Um, the first is that this generation, millennials specifically, but this generation of mothers that are in middle manager and moving up in their careers, this is the first time in history in which women are more educated than men, which is incredibly surprising uh, for many people and really changes the entire dynamic of motherhood and of working motherhood specifically. It means that women are having children later in life, that they're super educated, and even the family dynamics are very different than they have been in the past. Uh, the second is that this is the first generation to become parents that are digitally native. And so they're harnessing and leveraging technology in a very, very different way than previous generations. And I think acknowledging and seeing that is important. Um, and the third is that this is the first generation in which now, as of 2018, the majority of births in this country are now of minorities. And so today's mother is raising an incredibly diverse family as well. And, and as you said, Scott, 
mothers, specifically working mothers, carried a very disproportionate burden during the pandemic. Um, we were asking mothers to nurture in a society that has not been nurturing them. And when I say society, I mean at a cultural level, I mean at a governmental level, and I absolutely mean at a corporate level too. Jill, you're the mother of two young children. We know each other socially off air. We live both in Utah together and have some similar social circles. You weren't always an entrepreneur. You actually are, you're married, you're an entrepreneur. You're in many ways, maybe started as a solopreneur. You had a, a strong education and worked for entities where you were an employee. What's the biggest change you've experienced as a working mom, as an entrepreneur, co-founder, CEO, as perhaps uh, an employee of a larger organization? I'm guessing it has to do with support systems and, and things like that. Absolutely, it's a great question. It's it's very different. And, and I should say also, it's very different running a startup with two very young children with no funding and no revenue, frankly, as it was eight years ago for Motherly. And then today where I have school-aged children that I have the backstop of, of education and school for my children, childcare. Um, and also now being in a space where we're a funded business, we have revenue and I have an amazing team. So there's a difference between early stages of, the, of entrepreneurship and later stages as well. But when I compare back to when I was a business director at a consulting firm where I was working with a lot of Fortune 50 companies, a lot of three-letter intelligence organizations in the Washington, D.C. area, what was different for me was, one, the support structure was, was very different. Um, one, now I've built my own support structure around what works for me, and I'm not limited by the support structure that my employer provided for me. Um, so that's very different. And it's a different kind of agency and empowerment that you have when you run the business yourself and are leading it. Um, the second, though, on kind of the opposite side is the buck stops with me always. There's nowhere to go yeah. when there's a problem yeah. besides myself. Um, yeah. And so there's there really are pros and cons from a support perspective um, on, on both ends of the spectrum, especially as a working parent. So I think I've read some statistics where it says somewhere between 80 90 percent of uh, Startup businesses fail within three years. And we often read that frequently it's because of lack of funds or lack of runway. But you actually have written extensively. And one of the things you write about is that most startups fail because of interpersonal dynamics. So choose carefully. Riff on that. So, yes. Uh Certainly funding, getting to your first million dollars of funding, um, whether, whether it be revenue or venture backed is incredibly hard. But the real reason that businesses tend to, tend to not survive the early days as a startup, specifically a venture backed startup, is interpersonal dynamics between founding teams. And so for my co-founder, um, Liz Kennedy, who's an award-winning journalist and editor from the Washington Post originally, we like to say that our relationship is truly the secret sauce of Motherly. Um, we have very, very different backgrounds, an immense amount of respect for the differences in our backgrounds and what superpowers we bring to Motherly. But also we have, similar to any other kind of marriage, we have very aligned values. Business aside, we have very aligned values. And I think that that creates a level of trust that's really important when selecting who you're going to get married to, whether it's in business or in, in your personal life. And so for Liz and I, we've had we've never shied away from the hard conversations. Um, and we've also always given each other the benefit of the doubt. Um, and again, a lot of respect uh, for each other's superpowers that we're bringing to Motherly. Jill, you've also written that one of the main roles that CEOs play is to reinforce culture and values. As the CEO of Motherly, 
the co-founder. What is it you do on a day-to-day, weekly basis? I'm guessing you have employees that are primarily hybrid or virtual around the world and the nation. Well, what are some of the specific things you do to actually make sure that as the CEO, you're reinforcing the culture of motherly, which we know, of course, is crucial to retention, right? Most people did not quit their jobs during the pandemic, during the great resignation, if they loved their boss, if they loved the culture, they quit if they hated their boss or they hated the culture. What, what do you do to reinforce culture on a daily basis? So Motherly has been 100% remote um, since 2015, since we first launched. It was really important to us to create a next generation workplace in which parents and specifically working mothers could thrive. And so the culture was really the cornerstone of that was creating a remote first culture and understanding that we were going to have more flexibility and a different type of relationship with our um, with our employees, one that was based upon trust um, and that was really performance oriented, not just, you know, you know, putting in your time card, but really that you were there and laser focused on our mission and ultimately driving performance. Uh, but what I do personally, um, back in the early days of Motherly, we had daily team standups. Then we had weekly. Now we have monthly all hands, but I still do a weekly CEO video where they can see me, again, as a remote organization to get to see you know, my facial expressions, the intonations in my voice when I'm sharing updates for them across the week. That makes a huge difference. Um, and so Practicing that authenticity from a cultural perspective is really important. Um, And as you said, I have led a business of largely working mothers across a pandemic, um, a very, very challenging time. And for me, from a culture perspective, it was about leading um, authentically and then also practicing radical transparency. I treat every single person that's on our in our team as a shareholder in the same way that I do our investors, because people do have a choice about where they are spending their time and sharing their talent. And they are, in fact, investors as a, as a venture backed business. They are shareholders in our business. And I think treating them as such, communicating what's happening with the business, the, the wins and the struggles is really important. Jill, speaking of updates, Motherly produces an annual State of Motherhood report. Will you take a few minutes and talk about what are some of the findings that have come from your 2022 report and how should those in the C-suite or for that that matter, venture capitalists or private equity people that are actually helping to build these companies, what should we, what what do you want us to know and what do you hope we'll do differently as a result of what you're going to tell us right now? Great question. Uh, So at Motherly, we pride ourselves in being the voice of this generation of modern mothers. And so for the last five years, we have run the largest statistically significant study of today's U.S. mothers. And that means that in 2022, we had almost 20,000 women mothers uh, take the survey. We then weight that data to the U.S. Census, um, most recent U.S. Census, to ensure that it is truly statistically accurate and representative. And one of the things that we found this year is that for the first time in history, nearly half, 47% of today's mothers are actually the primary breadwinner in their family, earning 50% or more of the income of their family. And so what I want people to know about that amazing stat is that mothers, the working mother in your workforce right now is carrying an immense load. They are carrying the load of being the primary breadwinner. They are also, in most cases, carrying the burden of parenthood, um, of running their household. And this is very different. We've, We've been asking women for years and years to layer roles without offering additional support. And the pandemic brought many women to their to their breaking point. Um, We found that 
the reason that people are leaving the workforce, the great resignation, which was really the great motherhood resignation, was really around the lack of support of employers and of the government to provide affordable childcare, especially during the pandemic when so many schools were out. And so to me, that is what's most important about this. One is knowing that that woman that's working for you may be the breadwinner in her family and giving her the respect that comes with that, but also understanding unique pressures that as a working mother, she is carrying at home as well. And just ask her what she needs. Ask her what kind of support that she needs. I promise she's willing to share her voice. Jill, I don't have the statistic correct exactly, but I read on several occasions that the result of the pandemic had set women's careers back perhaps a full century. That the gains that have been made in terms of women in the C-suite, on boards, their roles and their equal pay and such has been incalculable in terms of the many decades it will take to recover that. To the extent any of that's even directionally accurate, which I bet it is, what do you think we should know about how workplaces, startups and companies should do to reattract working moms back into the workforce. What is the, what is the workplace look like where women will, be a, will, will find it appealing to come back to work? So let's start with why you need working mothers in your workforce. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, this is the most educated cohort. Um, it is no longer a nice to have to have working mothers in your workforce. It is actually an economic imperative. You need the most educated cohort in your workforce working for you, with you. It makes us competitive, not only at a company level, but at a national level, internationally, to ensure that we've got these people in the workforce. And so it is an imperative that we figure this out. And as you said, the great resignation during the pandemic, and you know, as they came together, really set mothers back in the workforce, in part because, as you said, we'd made so many strides. This generation of, of parents with younger children right now was choosing prior to the pandemic to make decisions that were different than their parents had made. We were choosing to create a different type of family structure for ourselves that facilitated this incredibly educated woman, mother, to be in the workforce and to help support her family. But what happens often when we go through crises is we revert back to what feels comfortable. And we all know that we were in in a crisis um, during the pandemic and that we were all incredibly uncomfortable. And something that makes us comfortable, gender stereotypes, gender norms, reverting back to things that we grew up with that felt very, very normal and aligned for us. And so that is why we often saw the man, the father's career take priority. Um, and we had the woman go more into a caretaking role and we saw the great resignation happen. So one, that's the reason that it happened. I do think that if we make strides sooner rather than later, we can go back to the place where society was trying to make these changes and really empower mothers and working mothers back into the workforce. And I think businesses need to do a lot about that because it is an economic imperative. Women are incredibly educated. As I said, this is an imperative for businesses. The starting point is recognizing flexible work, understanding that working from home and flexible hours that are based upon performance and that facilitate less childcare costs or augmenting the child um, the childcare costs is really, really helpful in the workforce. And second is to not expect parents, not just mothers, but not to expect parents to work as that they don't have children and then to parent 
as though they don't have a job, to understand that we are multidimensional, multifaceted people that have a lot of pressures both inside and outside of the workforce and find ways in which to honor that in the employers, um, in your employ in, in your employers, and finding ways to to have conversations again about what they need. And I promise you, it's not, it's not necessarily more pay unless that pay is gonna go offset the cost of childcare. It's flexibility and a focus on performance and deliverables and outcomes. Jill, beautifully said. Uh, thank you for that. Let's talk about your transition into entrepreneurship. What, what have you learned? Like if you're, if you're speaking to millions right now of women or for that matter, men, that might be looking to turn their side hustle into a full-time gig. Perhaps they're in a toxic workplace and they just need to leave and they've got an idea and they wanna move into that. Lots of risks, becoming an entrepreneur. It took, I think, your firm close to three years to secure your funding, if I'm not mistaken. You're up and thriving well now. You've, I'm sure, changed some things. What are maybe three or four things that you would remind our listeners and viewers, say, hey, first do this, be aware of this, think about that, and don't underestimate that. Take that wherever you want to go, because you are a treasure trove of hard-earned lessons. Tell us what we need to know about becoming an entrepreneur. Well, that is absolutely true. Any entrepreneur who's found any sort of success is absolutely a treasure trove of blood, sweat, and tears uh, earned lessons. Uh, so I would start with, if you have an idea, if you have a nugget of something that you believe has legs, has something big, the first thing I would tell you is don't treat it as precious. Talk about it constantly. Be out in the world, get feedback, be open to the feedback loop and test and iterate as much as you possibly can. So that would be first and foremost is do not think someone's going to steal your idea. Do not, unless it's got a very significant, you know, intellectual property that you need to trademark or get an IP protection for a uh, patent for, do not be precious about it. And frankly, even then, um, it, there are a lot of obstacles to overcome in a business and the likelihood of someone stealing your idea is very, very low, frankly. Um, and so be out there in the world, talk about it. And as I said, be open to feedback because that is a precious gift. So that would be number one. Number two, don't assume that every single entrepreneur you know, looks like this like college kid that like started in a basement or dropped out of Stanford. Um, the truth is that the most successful entrepreneurs are actually 45 years old. Um, and they didn't just quit their job and start a business. Most of them had it as a side hustle for a while and they modulated the risk in their lives. They kept a salary for a while. They worked on this until they had revenue coming in or until they had an investor, until they really felt that that was the right thing to do. Because as an entrepreneur, your job isn't to constantly take risks, but it's actually to mitigate risk as much as possible um, to ensure the success that you're having. Um, so those would be the first two. Um, and then the, the third thing that I would offer is when I think about what it takes to be successful, it is a combination of passion and persistence. And you really need both. Um, so ensure if you're going to make a leap on something that you're incredibly passionate about the problem that you're solving or the people that you're serving with your solution. And then most of it's then the persistence. Um, this is a tough, tough road of entrepreneurship. Um, it is you know, like going on a roller coaster. Um, it is incredibly challenging. Um, there are things that you won't anticipate uh, and most people will quit frankly. And so you've got to feel like you've got a passion enough to take you through those hard times, but that you are willing 
to be persistent and to let nothing get in your way, to make failure not be an option, because sometimes you have to just stay alive long enough to actually be successful. Let's talk about some specific areas of growth that you had to address and build. Like you, I am an entrepreneur, spent 25 years in a public company as an officer and began to transition out. I still am ambassador of Franklin Covey and have a business on my own. And I find, like most people, I tend to gravitate toward the parts I like the best. Business development, sales, pipeline, marketing, uh, product creation. I less like payroll and taxes and and collections, things like that. And I find I have to be really careful about where I spend my time because my, my outstanding invoices have now, you know, become a problem in my marriage. I have to go collect them all because my wife manages the money and the business and such. Talk about some of the things you had to learn. How are you a different leader entrepreneur today than you were maybe six, eight years ago when you first started out? So I'd say the changes came, one, just from experience, uh, but also as the business grows and change. Um, leaders have to be agile and, and really evolve as your business grows and changes. And our team even evolves and changes and who we need and who's here to serve the business. In the beginning, frankly, we were all jacks of all trade. Um, it was really the passion that was driving everyone. And you were learning, you, the royal us right here, we were all learning new things every single day. So I was doing payroll, I was doing HR, I was doing all of these things. And over time, I've been able to hire people that are way better at those things than me. Um, you always want to hire someone who's better than you. Um, and so we have been able to specialize over time and hire real experts that are leaders in their field to do the things that they're doing. And what I also learned, um, because it can be hard to, to make that transition from doing everything and being in the weeds with everything, to realizing that the business can't scale if I'm in everything. If I am the single point of failure for everything, we can't possibly scale. And so I had to learn to work on the business and not in the business in the same way. And that took a lot. Um, it took feedback from my executive team. It took my team. Um, and it took me burning it at both ends um, to really realize that I had to be working on the business and to do the things that only I could do. And as the business scales, there are fewer things that only I can do. And that's a good thing because the things that I do do have bigger strategic ripples and drive the business forward in more impactful ways. So let's finish our conversation talking about motherly. We mentioned it when we opened up. Talk a bit about the resources that working moms and leaders and perhaps future moms will discover by joining motherly. So motherly is here from the time that you are planning a pregnancy and growing up with you because once you become a mom, you never stop being a mom. And so we currently are aging up with the millennial, um, the millennial generation. And so our, our content goes from, again, trying to conceive up to about elementary school aged right now. And the kinds of resources we have are a ton of articles and written content. A lot of these are service oriented things to help you guide you through the milestones and the many challenges of parenting. Um, and many of them are also personal essays that help you feel less alone and more empowered in what you're doing. Our videos are absolutely award-winning. Um, our podcast, The Motherly Podcast, has honest conversations with really amazing mothers um, to, to help you think outside your own life and to see what's possible for you. Um, we also now have motherly classes, and these are digital education classes that help you go deeper um, with experts. Um, motherly is different because we are woman-centered, not baby-centered. Uh, we are here to help mothers understand that motherhood can be an opportunity to nurture, not lose who they are in motherhood. 
Um, we are also evidence-based and expert-driven. So you never have to worry about the content that you're getting from us. And we are um, lastly empowering. We're not here to scare you. Uh, we're here to make you feel empowered after every interaction with Motherly. You can tell you've played the role of CMO, Chief Revenue Officer, Chief Executive Officer, because you have your value prop down extremely well. Jill Koziel, the co-founder and CEO of Motherly, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been a pleasure. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.